Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. Uh, then they do a wonderful job of leading us tonight. Thank you to Becky and Thais and Tanya and Yosef and Ann and Boris and Vadim. Uh, I could continue to go on. What a great team. I love to say their names so that you know who's part of your community. I want to thank all those in the media team as well, Chloe Lee and Elon and Dan, Vaco, uh, Monique and Tyro, who are all helping us tonight with sound and media. And then Thea and, and Hyun Moon and Valerie and those of you helping us, Wilbur Cheeky, so many people serving today. Thank you so much, Liz and the, and the kids and her whole group. A lot of wonderful people serving. Thank you, King of Kings. Well, glad to see you again. You get to see me twice tonight. You'll get to see me a third time when I close the service later on as well. Hopefully that will be okay with you. So welcome everybody watching online. Also, Kings Community Live, Facebook Live, YouTube, and other platforms all around the world. We're happy you get a chance to be with us here in Jerusalem uh, today. Um, it's a big week for us. You know, lots of things going on. It's still very sensitive, though because it's always a little bit unsure about how should we act in the middle of such a sensitive time. We're still at war. I think everybody knows that. We're still in Gaza. We're still fighting Hezbollah uh, in the north at Lebanon. Uh, we're, we're, we're hearing that the, the Hutim, we say in Hebrew, the Houthis, they are mounting a large army trying to get from Yemen over here. They haven't figured out how to get here yet, but they're trying. All the while, there's bombs still every day all over the country. I'm sure all of you have been in and out of bomb shelters and uh, getting situations from Syria, and we know who's really behind all of these things. And, but even in the midst of all of that, we, we hope that you've been able to have, leading up till now at least, a happy Hanukkah season. Maybe the Lord has shown you some, some great things in the last few weeks of Hanukkah leading up. Uh, to this, and then, of course, we have um, holidays from now on to the end of the year with Christmas and New Year's, and um, I was even wished a, a, a happy Thanksgiving yesterday from a Nigerian group. I didn't know it was the Nigerian Thanksgiving, but happy Thanksgiving as well. So lots of things. You know, we, we, we have some focus points for uh, different times of the year, the Lord's appointed times, and then we also put emphasis on those, and then we, we also emphasize the two holidays in the Bible that are not commanded, but they are in the Bible from Purim and, and Hanukkah. And then we also recognize that there are many around the world who will be celebrating Yeshua's birth tomorrow. And so for those of you that are in that camp, we, we wish you a great holiday season. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, celebrate the Lord in the right order. Uh, and honor him. And then there are those in another camp that are thinking more along the lines of Sukkot is the time where uh, a lot of the prophecies fit for the Messiah's birth, which always means that nine months before Sukkot, of course, you have Christmas. Maybe it was the, the miraculous conception during this time of year. We accept that as well. Or maybe you're like some of the people here in Israel that do Christmas in June. There's an outreach, come on Wayne, you know what I'm talking about. There's an outreach here that one of our own leaders does. He does Christmas in June because it's, a, it's really an, a tool to touch his neighbors. It's just this kind of uh, unique thing that they do in the middle of the year. So whatever you're doing, however you're celebrating, we honor you. Uh, we, we ask and, and encourage you to seek the Lord in all of those things. So happy holidays to all of you wherever you are. 
I found it interesting that when I was going over the readings of Messiah's birth, uh, something of a pattern started to develop. And I want to look at that pattern tonight. That'll be mainly what we do tonight. And I'm going to run through a lot of scriptures. And, and don't worry, just when you start to feel like, my goodness, that's a lot of scriptures, Pastor, I'm going to have some slides for you. So I'm going to break it up, just shake you up a little bit. And then if you do start to get a little sleepy on me, because look, it's cold. Those of you that aren't in Jerusalem right now, you're watching us from other places. Uh, it's cold right now in Jerusalem. It's raining. It's been raining for days. Um, and that's a great opportunity for me to say thank you to Ann Hilsden, who yesterday helped us organize, not only herself, but others, but Ann primarily drove. Uh, Ann Hilsden, thank you so much. She was on the keyboard a little while ago. She helped organize the worship through the caroling yesterday, and they did it in cold weather, in the, in the rain, in the wind. They said it was really windy yesterday. So thank you, Ann, for doing that. But if you're not in Jerusalem, it is cold and rainy and windy. And you come in here and it's nice and cozy. Don't get too cozy. I might stop in the middle of this and have a prophetic word that says, stand up, I have a prophetic word. And that prophetic word is don't fall asleep. So don't get too cozy tonight. But listen to this. I'm going to start off in the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She, being Miriam, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. And right there, that was the verse that got this whole avalanche started in the scriptures. And I read it again, and I said, wait a second. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. And I stopped, and I thought, well, who are his people? You see what I'm saying? The Lord, like, it's like he shot an arrow and said, go, go figure out where that arrow's leading. Yeshua will save his people from their sins. Which people is he talking about? Well, Matthew chapter 2 continues a pattern we're going to build, Matthew 2, 1 and 2. After Yeshua was born in Bethlehem, or Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we know he has a people and we know that he is called king of the Jews. This is what the Magi said. Matthew Chapter 2, verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, that's a quote that, that they give in Matthew, but it's actually a quote from the prophets, the prophet Micah, chapter 5. I'll read it. It almost sounds exactly the same. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So here, Yeshua is not just prophesied to have a people. He's not just prophesied to be the king of the Jews. He's prophesied to become the ruler over Israel and to become Israel's shepherd. That means there's a spiritual component and there's a governmental component. Now, you should pick up on that from the book of Isaiah, that there's a spiritual component upon his first coming and a governmental component. We continue in Micah for a moment, same chapter, Micah 5, starting in verse 4. 
and he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So you have this governmental rulership. He's the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of Israel. He has a people. We want to find out who those people are because to those people, he's going to be both king and shepherd. There's a lot of prophetic calling on Yeshua's life. Jumping to the book of Luke chapter one for a second, verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Yeshua and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And that's a very important passage because it does point to his rulership. That's the kingship in the line of King David. That's that governmental rulership. But it also says that he will reign over Jacob's descendants. And in a few minutes, we're going to read another verse that talks about Jacob's descendants because that's how we're going to define the Jewish people. Jacob's descendants. So it's going to show up in Exodus, but it also shows up here in Luke and it's using the same terminology. Jacob's descendants are considered the Jewish people. He is the king of the Jews, king of the Jewish people, king of the descendants of Jacob. We continue in the book of Luke chapter 2, 11. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This time the angel is proclaiming Yeshua to be the Messiah and to have this calling. Same chapter, verse 28. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Yeshua will be a light and a revelation to the Gentiles. So look what's stacking up on him as a calling. He has a people. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the ruler of Israel in the line of King David, but he's also the shepherd of Israel in a pastoral spiritual sense, but he doesn't just stop his rulership with only the Jews and with Israel. He's also bringing light and revelation to the Gentile nations, and he will rule over all of the earth at some point. But in addition to that, he still rules over Israel. Matthew 27, 11. Meanwhile, Yeshua stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Yeshua replied. You see, in this part of the story, Pilate, Yeshua's grown up now, we're past his birth, we're past his ministry, we're at the end of his earthly ministry. He's an adult, he's about to sacrifice himself, and he's before the governor, Pilate. And Pilate says, hey, I'm looking way back into history. I remember you were called the king of the Jews. Tell me, are you the king of the Jews? And Yeshua doesn't shy away from it. He says, You've answered correctly. I am. I'm the king of the Jews. It is as you say. Same chapter, Matthew 27, verse 37. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Yeshua, king of the Jews. I thought that was interesting that that was the charge against him. Right? It doesn't say he's a thief or a liar or a hypocrite. 
the charge against him was that he was the king of the Jews. He had become everything that was prophesied that he had become, and that was a crime. Because in a time where you live under the emperor, you're not allowed to have another king that's, that's taking that outside of the Roman list of rulers, of emperors and kings and, 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 and governors and, and, and mayors and things like that. He had, a, he had a title outside of Rome. He was the king of the Jews. All four gospels record the same thing in this instance, that Pilate asks Yeshua, are you the king of the Jews? And he affirms this answer. And then they sign above his head that he was the king of the Jews and that was one of the crimes against him. Book of John, chapter one, verse 47. When Yeshua saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Yeshua answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathanael had recognized the role, not only of Yeshua being a great rabbi and a teacher, not only being the Messiah and the son of God, being deity himself, but he also recognized this title of being king of Israel. So what do we have in summary of this section? Well, many of the prophets, including Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, along with King David, the angel Gabriel, the shepherds in the field, the Magi, John, Nathaniel, Pilate, and others, all agree that Yeshua is the Messiah, but they also agree that he's the king of Israel and the king of the Jewish people. And you get all of that from the birth of Yeshua. Now, you might say, okay, you've defined that he's the king of Israel, so what is Israel? That's, that's important. Be- before he can fulfill being the king of Israel, you have to say, what is it? Where is it? What is it? Who is it? Well, for a moment, let's do a little history lesson. Israel, by the definition that we're going to use tonight, is the covenant land that was given to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac, Isaac through Jacob, Jacob through Judah, and then Judah on into the slavery days until the people were called out. And at that point, it spreads out to all of the tribes, which we will read in a moment. But at the very beginning, Israel is defined in Genesis chapter 12 as God speaks to Abraham and gives him this covenant. In Genesis 12, verse one, I'm gonna read verse one and verse six. It says, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Now verse six, and Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So now we know the land we're talking about, right? We know about the land because of the covenant promise long before it ever had the name Israel. It doesn't get the name Israel till much later because it can't get the name Israel until after Jacob is born and Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. So we can't have the name Israel yet. 
although the, the land is already being described, but notice how, how it's being described. It's being described as Canaan. Now again, that's a little history lesson. Canaan, the Canaanites, were never a unified nation of peoples. It described a region that was made up of primarily small city-states, and each city was in charge of its own autonomy. Sometimes the city-states and the leaders of those cities would make allies with other, other city-states, and then they would decide to be a temporary army together. But there was never a nation of Canaan. There was never a government of Canaan. The Canaanites are not one people. They are a spattering of many kinds of people that lived in individual small city-states. And throughout the millennia, this land that we're in today that we call Israel has been called many different things, and it depends on who's in charge at that moment. But it doesn't change the covenant. Just because we decide to change the name doesn't mean the covenant changes at all. In the early second century after the Lord, the primary term used was the Syria-Palestina, and it was given to a Roman province incorporating Judea and other territories, either before or after the suppression of the Bar Kokhba revolt of the Jews in 135. You see, what had happened was when Rome took over this area, at first they called this area Judea. And that would have made great sense because the Jews lived here. And of course, we know that today we get the word Jew from Judah. And so they called the area Judea. That makes a lot of sense. But the Jewish people living in Judea didn't take too kindly to a foreign government trying to rule over them, and we kept revolting against that government. We, get, we understand. We revolted against Rome, and we did it enough times that finally Rome got upset, and they were like, you know what? As one of your punishments, we're going to strip the name of your area away from you, and you're not going to be called Judea anymore. We're going to put in our own name, and that's when they put in the name Palestine. It was a punishment because the Jews kept revolting against Rome. And so you see that in your, in your history, and as you walk through the different names and the different time periods, the Romans did this and named the land Palestine in an effort to disconnect the Jewish people from the name of their own land. Do you understand that's what they were doing? They were trying to get the, the Jewish people to let go of that covenant. There's lots of ways the enemies tried to do that to the Jewish people over time. You know, Hitler tried to do it by stripping their, their Jewish names from them. You know, you, you might come into the concentration camp with a Jewish name, but you're not leaving here with a Jewish name. You're going to leave here with a tattooed number on your arm. He wanted to dehumanize them, not let them be Jewish, right? He would kill them for being Jewish, but he wouldn't let them carry that faith with them, that, that covenantal connection with them, not in their name. And Rome tried to do it with the land. You don't get to have that name anymore. We're changing it. But even though we, we see this throughout history, we have to look at what are the biblical boundaries of this covenant holy land that God promised to Abraham? Well, let's look at a couple of those scriptures. Exodus chapter 23, 31, God says, I will establish 
your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River, I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Well, today we understand that this description is only being fulfilled in part. Certainly we could say, okay, what about that part when you said the Red Sea? Well, we have Elat. If you know the southern part of Israel, if you go down to Elat, you're going to leave, you're going to leave like middle Israel and you're going to get past some of the southern towns and then you're going to drive several hours and not see a single thing. That's called the Negev. You're going to drive through the desert. There's nothing down there. And then finally, you're going to get to Elat. And Elat is our southernmost city that touches the Red Sea. So you could say, okay, in a small way, we touch the Red Sea. Okay, maybe that's fulfillment of this prophecy. It also says the Mediterranean Sea, Yom Tichon. It's all of our coastal towns. Okay, we can see our coastal towns touch the Mediterranean Sea. That's good. And then it says, and then from the desert. And I just said that we have a very large desert. That makes sense too. So we get the Red Sea touched, the Mediterranean Sea touched, we have the desert, but then there's a little bit of a problem in this verse. And the problem shows up when it says all the way to the Euphrates River. Amoni, can you help me with that first map? The map of Israel today. There it is. This is what we see today. All the way at the bottom of the yellow, you'll see the little blue, and that's the city of Elat, and it's touching that northern finger of the Red Sea when it has two fingers, right? It's touching that. And you can see where we touch the Mediterranean. And then you can see that we have the desert, which is the big triangle at the bottom. And then to the right, you're going to see the, the, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee up there. But then you've got Jordan and Syria on the far side of the West Bank. And the problem is that in this prophecy, the, Mediter- uh, excuse me, the Euphrates River is like off the screen. How is God going to do this one? All I would say to you is in the coming years, I'm going to invite you to put a seatbelt on and buckle up because it's about to get bumpy. Er. It's bumpy now. It's about to get bumpier. Look what God says to Abraham. Just to be clear about the covenant borders that they didn't somehow get them wrong in Exodus. Let's go back to the beginning to Genesis and make sure this, this is, is this really what God said? Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now that's twice that he's used that phrase very specifically in terms of where the land border will be. So somehow in a future time, Israel will extend to the Euphrates River. And so now we approach a very sensitive question that we want to answer tonight together. We want to answer it through a pattern that we see in the Bible. And the question is this. Is it okay or is it proper to support the modern state of Israel as the home for the Jewish people, not only as a historical right, given after World War II and given after the British mandate, 
And not only after the modern war victory status where most countries in the world have their borders because they won it in a war, not only because of those two things, but are we also allowed to support modern Israel even though it doesn't match the biblical covenant boundaries as described? That's an important question. I think we can answer it. If you were to look a little bit further in your research, write this down, Numbers chapter 34 and Ezekiel chapter 47. Because in both of these chapters, the Bible goes through very great detail about the appropriate boundaries of what is called Israel. It names which mountains you are to include, which rivers you are to include, which cities you are to include, and it draws all of these very clearly from, from, from rivers and mountains and cities and deserts, and it's very shaped from God's point of view. Let me walk you through a couple of maps. Monique, let, we have four more little maps. This is what Israel would look like if we read the scriptures correctly. From the Wadi of Egypt, from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, including the Negev, and all the way over to the Euphrates River. Go to the next one. That's what it looks like in someone else's rendering. So these are like historians all trying to read it and drawing it on a map. And it looks kind of similar to the last one. Go to the third one. A greater Israel, they call it. This is greater Israel one day, according to the prophecies, because it has to go all the way over to the Euphrates. But notice, in order to do that, we're going to have to deal with Jordan and Syria and Saudi Arabia, parts of Egypt, Iraq. And there's one last one. They call it the kingdom of David. You have one last one. Yeah, there it is. And they all kind of match. And how, you might say, well, how are they coming up with these borders? It's right here in the Bible. Exodus 23, Genesis 15, Numbers 34, Ezekiel 47, and they all describe the exact same thing over multiple generations. And this is where I'm very, very grateful that God is God. And we're not. Because somehow, he has to get us to that point in the midst of what we deal with today. And he has to do it in a time where there's the greatest harvest on the earth before the end of the age. Because you've got to start thinking to yourself on a, on a humanistic level and we're not advocating this. But on a humanistic military level, small little baby Israel today is certainly not going to be able to take on all of those nations and try to conquer all of those lands. So God is going to have to do something absolutely miraculous. And it will be certainly outside our boundaries to describe it with pencil and a piece of paper. But the encouragement is this. That's how God has always done everything. Beyond what we could describe, beyond what we could define, what, beyond what we could conceive in our mind. God will give you exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or even think. And right now we're having, we're having a creative moment just trying to buy into modern Israel and it's so tiny compared to the prophetic words. Let me give you one of our key phrases of tonight. 
we as believers are accepted by Yeshua even though we do not match what we will become either. And so it is with Israel today. If you're not sure, if you're still wrestling with, I'm not sure that today's Israel should be considered the Israel of the covenant of the Jewish people, and you're using the the argument that the boundaries don't line up, and that becomes your argument. I would just remind all of us, the pattern of God is to accept you long before you become the fullness of what you will become. He loved you while you were still his enemies. He died for you before you had done anything worthy of being saved. He chose Israel, not because they were the greatest. It actually says he chose them because they were the smallest and the most feeble people. Before they had done anything, believed anything, exampled anything, God had already chosen them to become a nation that would bless all other nations. And that's the pattern that God is teaching us today. He believes in you. He believes in the Jewish people. He believes in the nation of Israel. Even before we get to become what we will become. I have people all the time concerned about the the current government of Israel. And they want to ask me, Pastor Chad, what is your stance on the current government of Israel? Well, look, I, I I support Israel. But I don't support Israel blindly. What that means is I support the idea of where we're headed, but I don't support every decision we make. Why? Because we have the majority, if not all of our decision makers, aren't even believers in the Messiah yet, and they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, so they don't have the wisdom of God to take Israel in all of the right directions. They make mistakes, we make bad decisions, and a lot of times we pay the price for these bad decisions. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. Paul wrestled with this in Romans with all of the mistakes we've made and our rejection of the Messiah and our, and our letting go of the covenant and we've not done it right, has God rejected his people Israel by no means exclamation point? And the reason that's important to you and I today is because if he rejects Israel on their weak points, then he rejects you on your weak points. And hold up all the replacement theologians who believe that Israel's violation of the covenant opened the door that one day this other group called the church or the Gentile believers, we were going to swoop in one day because Israel messed up and we were just going to bump them out of the way and get them out of the chair of covenant and then one day we were going to do it. We were going to be the ones. Well, listen, if that's how God functioned when Israel failed to keep the covenants accurately and God knocked them out of the chair, what do you think he should be doing to the church right now? Church world, can I just speak a moment? As a Gentile believer, having a foot in both worlds, both the Messianic Jewish world where I was raised and as an Israeli citizen and as a Gentile from birth, I get to say lots of stuff. (laughs) 
Our divorce rate right now is as high as the world. Israel never had that. Our promiscuity rate, off the charts. Our pornography rate, up to 80%. Some, some reports are saying, in the body of Messiah, are struggling with pornography. If you get bumped out of the chair because you're not faithful to the covenant of God, then church world, Gentile Christian church world, you're done, by the way. So let's just take replacement theology and throw it in the trash because that's never been a pattern of how God works. He doesn't stop and kick people out of the chair of covenant. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. And he moves forward on the promise of the faithful little remnant. As long as there is a faithful little remnant who will believe in him, he will stay attached to that covenant. And what do we learn from the scriptures? When Elijah said, I'm the last prophet, kill me, I'm done. I'm the last one. God said, hey, stop crying. Stop whining. There are 7,000 faithful in a cave. You're not the last one. There's a remnant. There has always been a faithful remnant of Jews in this land from the day of Yeshua forward. Always been a faithful remnant of Jews. Somewhere, some number. Hidden in the open, there's always been. And that little faithful remnant keeps that covenant alive. And aren't we glad that God looks at that and he keeps his faithfulness to us when we don't deserve it. And that's how we address things so inaccurate as replacement theology. It doesn't fit the biblical patterns of God's heart. We could go a little bit further. The tabernacle and the temple were used by God to perform ceremonial sacrifices and to forgive the sins of Israel, even though the actual perfect sacrifice of Yeshua was yet to come. You see, if you believe in replacement theology, then you got to throw away the temple. Because the temple was a temporary, insufficient way to deal with sacrifice of sin. And it was pointing to the greater fulfillment of Yeshua himself. Just like little Israel today is not all that we will become. Just like the body of Messiah today is not all that we will become either. Just like as we as individuals are not all that we will become one day and God loves us anyway and he's patient with us anyway and he keeps covenant with us anyway. Ephesians 4, 11. So the Messiah himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Messiah may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of the Messiah. You got to see it. It's right there. We are not mature yet. We are working on becoming that, a unified body, mature in the Lord, and to reach our fullness. But God doesn't reject us just because we're not there yet. And that's how he treats his people Israel. They're not there yet, but they will become. There's a fullness we have to reach. And Zechariah 4.10 reminds us, who dares despise the day of small beginnings? 
Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the, in the hand of Zerubbabel. It's speaking of the rebuilding of the temple there. Don't despise it when it starts small. You don't bring someone to the Lord and preach Yeshua to them and they accept Messiah and the first day they're a believer and you read them a long list of how sinful they are. And you better get this right by tomorrow morning otherwise you are kicked out. That'd be sad if that's how God treated us. Get it right by tomorrow. I give you 24 hours. Get it right or you're out. The Bible says, God is not slow as some of you suppose, but he is patient, waiting until the fulfillment, waiting until the proper time. So we've defined what is Israel. Now let's define who is a Jew. Oh, Pastor Chad, do you dare tread into those waters? I dare. And the reason I dare has nothing to do with me, my boldness, my courage, my level of intelligence or education has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the simplicity of the scriptures. And you can fire all of the bullets at me you want and all the arrows you want with your questions and doubts and theology, and all I'm going to do is just hold up the Bible and stand behind it as a shield. Throughout history, they were called Hebrews, Israelites, the children of Israel, all the different names of the Jewish people throughout the Bible. They were called Jew, which is often used today, coming from the word Judah, as I mentioned earlier. And then today we have another term that's a little bit different, and I want those of you that maybe you're outside of Israel, you don't know this, but today there's another term that's a little bit different. It's called Israeli. And I don't want you to confuse something. Israeli does not automatically mean Jew. Just understand that. It means someone who probably born here, lives here, citizen of here, but they're not Jewish. So for instance, I, in some measure, I am as an Israeli citizen, I am an Israeli. I'm not Jewish. I never claim to be Jewish. I'm not born from a Jewish family. So you, you can have people in the land who are not Jewish, they're Israeli. That could go for Arab Israelis, Druze Israelis, mixed marriages, Gentile Israelis. It can go for lots of things. So don't misunderstand Israeli does not automatically mean Jew, although oftentimes the Jewish people here in Israel are Israeli. Okay? But a Jewish person is someone born as a descendant from one of the 12 tribal families of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob. Now I'm gonna come back to that, that statement when I talked about the descendants of Jacob. Listen to what it says in Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. Notice it did not say, this is what you are to say to the one tribe called Judah. All of them are considered the tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, the descendants of Jacob and Abraham, the Jewish people. You might even call it Israel. All of them are collectively included here Say to the descendants of Jacob 
and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Notice you get both connected together. Descendants of Jacob, all of the tribes, and Israel is now being used synonymously. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Notice that's all of the tribes. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, all of the tribes. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, all of the tribes. He doesn't narrow it down to only Judah. Now, you're going to get to some other theologies down the road. You start talking about the lost tribes and the Ephraimites and all that stuff, and they start to believe that only a few of the tribes are actually Jewish and are actually part of the covenant. When the covenant is offered to Abraham and his descendants, it goes Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to all of his descendants, all of the tribal head leaders, and then their descendants. And the land of Israel the markers of the physical land go to these people. No one else has a claim to this land, according to the Bible. No one else has a claim to this land according to modern warfare either. I always go back to that because you'll hear arguments about what about this people group and this people group, and we do want to take care of all of the people groups. Don't get me wrong. I want us to figure out something. It may take the Messiah returning for us to do that since we've tried for thousands of years. Hey, but if that's the call that gets Messiah back, I'm all for it. But from a covenantal biblical perspective, this, this land was given to these descendants. And if you'll come on back up, Thais. And we know from two different scriptures that the children of Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the descendants of Jacob, we know that they are considered Jewish if they're born from a Jewish family and if they're born from even one Jewish parent. Let me, let me set the record straight biblically on this. This is one of the ways we don't agree with the modern government of Israel. Right now, the modern government of Israel tries to define a Jewish person as being born from two Jewish parents or from two Jewish grandparents and someone who adheres to a certain measure of Judaism. And all of that definition that they've put on in the modern Jewish definition does not equal what the Bible says a Jewish person is. So just for reference... Do you know a Jewish child can be born to mixed parents? Did you know that? It's very important that you get this because as the Lord starts to bring the Olim home, you're going to see from the nations a lot more of these mixed marriages that have Jewish children. If you look at Exodus chapter 4, let's remember that Moses, Jewish from the tribe of Levi, he married Zipporah. Zipporah was not Jewish. She was a Midianite. And they had a son named Gershom. And for whatever reason we don't know, Moses did not obey the covenant of God to circumcise Gershom like he was commanded. And the angel came when Moses was on the way 
and demanded that that Jewish baby boy be circumcised. And it was such a serious moment that Zipporah, the non-Jewish mother, grabbed the flint knife and she circumcised him. That's how desperate of a moment it was. You say to yourself, is a child born from a Jewish father and a Gentile mother, is that a Jewish child? According to God, it is. You say, yeah, but that's, that's the Old Testament. Well, I'd love to show you something from the New Testament. Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul, Jewish believer, a rabbi, used to be part of the Sanhedrin. He's now become a believer and he's preaching the gospel and he's making disciples and he's building congregations all over the world. And he encounters this young man that he wants to disciple and the young man's name is Timothy. And in the Bible in Acts chapter 16, it's very clear that Timothy's mother is Jewish and his father is not. His father is a Greek. And Paul says to Timothy, you need to come with me to the temple to be circumcised. So now we have on both sides of the coin, in Moses' case, Jewish father, Gentile mother, child is Jewish. In Paul and Timothy's case, Jewish mother, Gentile father, child is considered Jewish. Anyone born from the descendants of Jacob, from the 12 tribal leaders, is Jewish. And with that Jewishness comes a responsibility to the covenants of God. Even if you're born of only one Jewish parent, you have a responsibility to the covenants that God made with your people. My wife is Jewish. We have raised our four children completely in a Jewish home. We celebrate everything there is to celebrate that we know of biblically. We're trying to get into the Bible. We're not trying to get out of the Bible. And I think if there are Jewish families, something we support here at King of Kings is making sure that Jewish families know that this is a safe space for you to express your Jewishness and your heritage. And we're going to do everything we can to help you do that. Let me close with this. When we celebrate the birth of Yeshua, whether it be in the spring around Pesach, as some do, or at Sukkot, like we do oftentimes here at King of Kings, or in the fall or even later in the year like today, we must remember what he was born for and what he was destined to rule. He was born the king of Israel. He was born the king of the Jews. He was born the shepherd of Israel. He was born the Messiah, God himself in the flesh. He was born to lead and take over the throne of King David. He was born to be a revelation and light to the Gentiles. He was born to be the prince of peace and one day all governments will rest on his shoulders. Israel doesn't look today like it will look one day, but it's okay to support the process. Because just like we are not what we will become one day, Israel is not today what it will become one day. And God still loves us, and he still loves Israel. Our last verse, Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of the Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. 
That means on the earth, in the millennial reign, the thousand years, the age to come, our Messiah will reign. Why don't you stand to your feet with me? Let me just bless you with a prayer and a worship song. Thank you, Lord, for letting us dive in deeply tonight to your word. Father, it gives us a great security that even when we have these difficult questions that maybe they're politically difficult or they're culturally difficult, they're actually not that difficult in your word. Oftentimes, the Bible explains the Bible if you'll give it a chance. Let us be people of the word today. Let us celebrate you, the goodness of your birth. Lord, thank you for coming out of heaven for us. Thank you for taking up the rulership First, the shepherdship, the sacrifice, the high priesthood, and now, coming soon, the kingship. Yeshua, what we want to say to you today is thank you for choosing us to be here in the land right now, such a time and such a season. We just want to proclaim the truth of your kingdom and keep this country warm until you get back. Thank you for choosing us. It's your land. We're just here to keep it moving forward until you return. We glorify your name today, Yeshua. Amen, amen. Let's worship and let that sink in for a few minutes and then I'll, I'll dismiss us.